0: Hello, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm Laura Coco, Director of Marketing and Communications for HFSA, and I'm pleased to bring you our latest episode of the podcast, which is part of the HFSA Patient-Focused Heart Failure Awareness 365 Campaign, where we try to bring you information to help patients and caregivers dealing with heart failure day in and day out. I'm really looking forward to today's episode. We're speaking with three individuals for whom emotional wellness and mental health care is an important component of heart failure treatment and care. Our first guest is Dr. Laura Peters, who is a nurse practitioner in advanced heart failure and transplant at the University of Colorado Transplant Center. Dr. Peters is a board-certified family nurse practitioner who is passionate about the integration of mental health care In the routine care of the patients she sees on a regular basis. Our next guest is Dr. Tyler Brannigan, a heart transplant psychologist, also at the University of Colorado Transplant Center, with expertise in treating patients who are candidates for transplant or who have undergone transplant. Also with us today is Brooke Holmeyer, who was diagnosed with heart failure back in 2017, shortly after giving birth to her first child. Brooke then went on to have a heart transplant at the University of Colorado Transplant Center, where she worked closely with Dr. Peters along the way. She experienced challenges in processing all that she was going through, which, and to be honest, was quite a lot, especially with being a new mother at the same time as receiving a diagnosis and a transplant. So we'll hear more about her journey as we continue. But for now, I'd like to welcome everybody to the show.
1: Thanks for having us.
2: Hi,
0: Laura. Thanks so much for having us. Hi everyone, thanks for having me included. So as I mentioned, we're talking today about the emotional side of heart failure. And the fact is a diagnosis of heart failure and the subsequent treatment, including surgeries to implant devices and transplants, it can all be extremely emotionally taxing for both patients and their caregivers. And we often hear that the word failure being in the name of the disease can be really discouraging and even scary to patients. And on top of all that, we're living in a world in which there's a huge stigma around mental health care and seeking therapy. But today, we've brought in the experts to help us make a sense of how a patient living with heart failure, going through transplant, can recognize that they might need help and how they can go about finding it and where they can go about finding it. So I want to start out by getting a better understanding of the words we're using, Dr. Brannigan, you are a heart transplant psychologist, but we often hear about social workers, we hear the word counselors, therapists, and so on. So what are the various roles for mental health professionals a patient living with heart failure might encounter in a center or an institution?
1: Yeah, you know, it really may depend on the center that the patient presents at or is working with uh, throughout the course of Advanced Heart Therapies. I know depending on the center, the patient may encounter a psychiatrist and to be clear, the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is that psychiatrists prescribe medications and uh, have medical degrees and then psychologists have their doctorate in psychology and are typically more expert in objective assessment and diagnosis of mental health concerns. Then at the same time, you know, uh, there's also social workers and they may be involved in patient's care in a variety of different roles, whether it's case management, evaluation of their social and uh, mental health situation. Uh, So it really depends on the center that the person is at here at the University of Colorado, we have social workers and psychologists. And at our center, the social workers will do an evaluation with the patients as well as the psychologist who will do an evaluation. And really the psychologist's role or my role at our center then is to really focus in on the mental health aspects and not as much the social impacts that transplant or advanced therapies may be involved with. But, you know, I, I will say that No matter the center that you're at, hopefully the the center has some type of mental health and services available and either in the evaluation or treatment phase.
0: Wow. Those were all really helpful explanations. Sometimes I think it's just really important to know who you're working with and, and to understand what their role is. So I would love if you could talk to us about how a journey with heart failure from that diagnosis to maybe considering and undergoing surgeries and transplants to even later on down the road, how can that impact someone's mental health and emotional wellness?
1: Well, you know, a diagnosis of heart failure is really life-changing for a patient. Everything that goes on in a patient's life starts to get filtered through that screen of, of heart failure. Sometimes it can be the impact of that people are no longer able to be as Active in participation with their children or grandchildren. And that obviously has some major effects on well being and quality of life. But then there's also the impacts of just the heart failure itself, whether it's reduced circulation or the other uh, co occurring diseases that might happen with the heart failure. All of those things can impact the heart, which is a big consumer of blood in our body and uh, requires a lot of circulation. And so when someone hears about a heart failure diagnosis, oftentimes the failure term is, as you pointed out, the one that really they connect with. And it feels very definite in that moment. A lot of questions come up, not only just with what are the options, but also what does life look like from here on out? And so I I think that You know, we see higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, and then also something called demoralization, which I'm happy to talk about more and maybe it'll come up again later. But uh, that's really just something that we see a lot with chronic illness where people can become demoralized and start to feel like they have lower motivation just because they have to get up every day and fight for every breath or fight for every moment of their life.
0: So, Dr. Peters, turning it over to you for a moment, as a nurse practitioner, you might actually be there for that initial diagnosis and maybe referring patients on to someone like Dr. Branigan. So, how have you addressed or experienced mental health care as a topic with your patients over the years? Are you and other health care providers screening for symptoms with patients or checking in with them to see how they're managing the emotional implications of diagnosis, or particular treatment? We do evaluate
2: all of our patients for mental health concerns during the advanced therapies evaluation. We also have patients that come to us before they need an evaluation, and so all of our providers are aware of the different ways that people can experience mental wellness with a heart failure diagnosis. We do have a multidisciplinary team that is available, even if somebody is not going through an advanced therapies evaluation. And so we do have social workers we can refer to, and many of our patients have primary care providers that can also support them in this. However, as patients go through heart failure and get to the point where they need an advanced therapy evaluation, we do see an increase in stress levels, likely related to disease process, but that's where we can find um, coping mechanisms and some problems can arise. And so that's where our team takes a pretty proactive approach and we do full evaluations for every single person, regardless of whether they've had mental health concerns in the past in our group or historically. We also noted in our heart transplant clinic a need for more intentional mental wellness evaluation. So a few years ago, we implemented a routine depression screen, along with then a follow-up plan for offering resources and referrals to specialists for the patients who needed more mental health support. Our goal through that process was to normalize and integrate regular mental health checks for our patients. I think it can be challenging for patients to verbalize mental health concerns or to understand that the symptoms they might be experiencing are not just related to heart failure or heart transplant. Sometimes it's really hard because the symptoms can be so similar. Sometimes patients don't understand that they have mental health concerns and it's a caregiver that brings it up. By adding our mental wellness to the conversations and care we provide our patients, we're hoping to normalize this conversation and to let our patients know that we value all aspects of their care and quality of life.
0: That's fantastic. It's really good to hear that you're trying to do more intentional wellness checks and offering resources and referrals. And now, Dr. Peters, you worked with Brooke as a patient. And so I'd like at this time, I think, to turn it over to Brooke and hear a little bit about your story. So you were diagnosed at age 31, as we mentioned, right after you gave birth to your first child and had your heart transplant shortly after that. So can you tell us a little bit more about your journey from that diagnosis to the transplant to where you are today?
3: Yes. As you said, since my journey was so intertwined with becoming a new mother, I had a relatively normal pregnancy. And I didn't realize till after I went full term and had my daughter that a lot of the symptoms I was having, like food aversions and swelling, hand pains and shortness of breath were all actually related more so to heart failure than being my pregnancy. And I was informed the day after I had my daughter that they did an echo and my ejection fraction rate was less than 10% with like 50s to 60s being normal. And they said that since my heart had had to work so hard, that it was twice the size that it would have been otherwise. And so in those first few days, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety, first from being separated from my new daughter and being in the ICU. And then from all this new information that I was trying to wrap my head around what it meant. So I was eventually transferred to the University of Colorado. And I did wait only about 33 days and got my transplant. And from there, I was kind of a success story, I guess you would say. So a lot of my focus then went on to now I can just be a mom.
0: How did all of those experiences really make you feel? But that's a big question, uh, I know. So. <laughs> right.
3: I definitely battled with some anxiety in the beginning and was helped through that being hospitalized some, but I had a lot of family support. I had, my husband was staying with me at the hospital. I was getting daily visits with my daughter, which was huge. The side that did come with the news of being a transplant was initially very hard because I have actually been a registered donor and I've kind of thought about hopefully being able to donate someday, obviously not in the near future, but someday I wanted to be on that side of it. So I remember saying to my mom when I got the news that, no, this this isn't the side of this I wanted to be on. I wanted to be able to be a donor eventually one day and you feel a little bit of selfishness and guilt being the receiver, because obviously with a heart transplant, you know what that means. And that's what I was kind of processing through a lot of my time in the actual hospital stay was what I was there waiting for was that.
0: (laughs) So Brooke, at what point in your journey, did you realize that maybe you needed to seek out some additional support? I mean, the the moment, was there a moment or a particular set of moments where you said, oh my gosh, I just, I need to speak with someone. I need some, some other support. Right. So
3: since I did have a lot of luck or just happened to make it through a lot of the physical aspects without things coming too hard to me, I was able to really Live on what's, you know. Say the high of just getting home, being a mom. I was allowed to travel. I was allowed to go back and visit my family. So it wasn't until about I would say maybe eight or nine months after transplant that I had been battling with a chronic cough that they couldn't really find anything serious that was going on. It was kind of just like, yeah, we have done a lot of tests and we're not exactly sure, but it made me nervous because I had already lived what I felt like was worst case scenario. When someone tells you you have heart failure, the very end of that was heart transplant. So I got in my head a little and went back to that place. And I ended up in the emergency room for a panic attack. Like I felt shortness of breath. So I thought that was related to my heart, but actually it was just, all of the little things over time, building up and realizing that I hadn't processed it. And that's when I remembered from the very beginning, Dr. Peters had mentioned that it would be completely normal if I were to feel depression or anxiety. And so just her kind of stating that from the beginning, let me kind of go back and say, okay, yeah, something else is going on. And I had that kind of connection with her that I just felt comfortable opening up because they had done the depression screenings over time. But even to myself, I wasn't always letting myself go there. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I get to do all these things. I'm enjoying my life. I don't have much to complain about. But slowly through more appointments, I was able to kind of just naturally break down because I couldn't hold it in
0: anymore. So, Brooke, it seems like you opened up to Dr. Peters about how you were feeling and shared a little bit about your experience. So. I would love if you can both talk about your relationship and working together on this particular angle of the treatment that really extends beyond the cardiology and heart failure side of things. So, Brooke, I'm wondering how did Dr. Peters support you? You've already talked about this a little bit, but maybe you can tell us more. And and Dr. Peters, maybe you can tell us how you offered that support to Brooke. So turn it over to whoever wants to go first. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I remember Dr. Peters, I believe at the time she might have been even doing some extra studying on the mental health side because I remember her bringing up how that was an interest of hers and they were kind of incorporating it more in the heart transplant patient side. So just her mentioning that alongside with the screenings they had done just gave me that level of comfort to mention to her hey, I guess I am feeling overwhelmed.
2: Yeah, and I think, Brooke, that you were right. I was starting to have more of an interest in that. I think part of what interests me in this was our patients sharing their stories with me. And often we would sit in rooms and I just heard so many different aspects of the experience after a heart transplant And the more that I read and the more that I realized that this is just a big part of the experience that patients have, from my perspective, Brooke, you were doing so well after your heart transplant. Like you said, you didn't really have rejection. You had really good functional capacity. You were able to perform all of your normal activities. You were traveling, you were active, you had a daughter, and I know we had kind of treated you for some depression. Um, I would call it situational depression in that first year, which is very common giving a stressful life circumstance. But it was after that first year that I really noticed things were maybe a little bit different. And the biggest thing for me was that you seem to be struggling to find joy and fulfillment in your life and i just didn't feel like that was because you weren't trying hard enough or um that you were you know sort of the person that doesn't have a lot of extra things you just had this huge beautiful life and i think there is just such an emotional experience that you went through with your diagnosis and the suddenness of it and the severity and then what you needed to kind of go through to get to where you are today. And so I, I really felt like we would not be doing you a service if we didn't acknowledge that aspect as
0: well. Thank you both for sharing that that experience and that relationship. It sounds like patients might get very close with their, their providers that they're seeing because it's such a, a really life-changing event that happens with a diagnosis or a transplant. Dr. Peters, can you tell us about some of the symptoms that patients should look out for that differentiate the psychological or mental health concerns over heart failure concerns and at what point should they ask for support or ask for something to be looked into a little more?
2: Yeah, like I said and what I noticed most with Brooke is I pay attention to what people are doing in their lives outside of their heart failure or heart transplant. We follow these patients so closely and we get to know their families. We get to know the things that they enjoy. We get to know hobbies, what they do for work. And so that is a big piece of sort of my clinic visit. Are they sort of doing the things that they enjoy? Are they engaged in their social relationships? Are they working? Are they enjoying the forms of exercise they used to? Did they find new ways to be active? In general, are there things in their life outside of this disease process that's bringing them joy and fulfillment? Do they have a purpose? And I think it can be difficult to know when patients should ask for help. So I would say as a provider, ask before you think you need to ask. If you have concerns, chances are there's something there that needs to be investigated further. And it may be medication-related. It may be part of the disease course, but it may be some aspect of mental wellness that we can assist with or refer or provide resources. Many symptoms of heart failure and depression overlap. So it's it's sometimes challenging to ask patients to tease out on their own, whether it's disease process or it's a mental health component. And so I think encouraging patients to be proactive and to really ask their providers for input. I also think it's really important to engage caregivers and the social support that the patient has. Um, Like I said earlier, sometimes patients aren't aware, but their social support may notice changes in them and are able to kind of provide that sort of feedback as
0: well. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Brannigan. is there anything you would add to that?
1: Yeah, I think that's Dr. Peters knocked it out the park and really, you know, with the the list of signs that we, that we look for, some of the research shows that about 30% of people who have an implanted device, a cardiac device will experience depression. It's about the same for those going through transplant. Um, and, you know, that lack of enjoyment and things that you used to enjoy, I can remember a patient of mine who said to me, you know, I, I love my grandkids and I just don't look forward to seeing them as much as I used to and that feels awful to say but whenever I'm with them it just doesn't make me as happy as it used to and so I think that those types of signs and symptoms become a bigger mark for what might be going on underneath and then when we look at folks in the post-transplant period when we see people who still have low motivation and low energy and are feeling heavy and sluggish, and yet their transplanted organ is doing great. And there's really no explanation from a physiological perspective to explain the cause of this change in them. Then we start thinking more about whether or not it's a psychological factor that might be contributing and whether or not their mental wellness is not in a place that they want to be. You know, quality of life is a major benefit for transplant. And uh, if they're not achieving that primary goal of living life after transplant, then it should give any medical team concern, primarily because it's a concern that the patient has. And it's the thing that they live with day in and day out. And so it's not enough to just look at their cardiac markers and whether or not they're in rejection but to also ask them whether or not they're achieving what they wanted to with the transplant.
0: You spoke about patients feeling sad and not enjoying the things they like to do in the past. And I know Brooke mentioned earlier that she had wanted to be on the other side of of the organ transplant and and she felt maybe a little selfish and guilty. Do you hear that kind of talk from transplant patients a lot, Dr. Branigan?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the questions that comes up with folks before transplant is that it's hard to think about that someone has to die in order for me to live. And this is one of those areas where transplant is a convergence between death and life. And that's a hard factor for a lot of the recipients and even their families to wrap their minds around. But I think especially for the recipients, it's not quite survivor's guilt in in some way, but it it seems somewhat related to that in the sense that patients question about what does this mean for me? What does it mean for the family of the the loved one who donated their heart to me? And also when people are not feeling as emotionally well as they would like in the post-transplant process, they might begin to feel like, I'm not using this heart in the way that the donor would want me to. And they may feel some guilt uh, related to that because they've been given this incredible gift. And how they typically make sense of it is, is that, well, I'll be back in my life and I will be you know excelling and really enjoying it to the fullest. And then when depression or anxiety or trauma sets in, it begins to become a barrier for that and it raises a whole other host of questions for the patient.
0: I know that we've covered a lot of ground here, but I'm wondering if there are any big questions that you hear a lot from people around mental health and in dealing with their diagnosis and transplant. If there's big questions we haven't covered yet and, and how do you address those, um, Dr. Branigan, let's, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, I think one before the transplant happens is how do I wait for an organ? And how do I deal with the unknowns? When is that call going to come for me? How long will it be? Am I going to get through the surgery? Well, am I even going to survive the surgery? Uh, How painful will it be? How will this impact my family if I'm not able to be there to care for them because I'm recovering from such an intense surgery? Those are all questions that come up uh, before transplant. And then you know, sometimes after transplant, some people may ask, well, what now? You know, what do I do now? Uh, so much of my life has been about heart failure recently. What do I do now with my life? Or it may also be, I got a transplant, so why am I not happy? Or why do I feel worried all the time that, you know, the next shoe will drop in my life, even though now I know that then I'm in the clear Those questions are really tough to live with, and I know that they are ones that have gone through many patients' minds. What's important for patients to hear, though, is is that those questions are normal, and really whatever question you're having is, is really more, don't think about it as good or bad, wrong, or right. Think about it as information that's telling you something that you might want to explore more with your medical team or to work with a professional to talk through and process and make sense of.
0: Dr. Peters, are there any other questions that you would add in that and how you would address them?
2: I would echo much of what Dr. Branigan has said, because my role tends to focus on the after heart transplant. I see a lot of those patients, the majority of questions tends to be regarding why don't I feel happier? Why am I sad? Why am I struggling? I think that receiving a heart transplant is an incredibly emotional experience. Patients are aware that they were close to death and they needed a heart transplant in order to live. They also are acutely aware by receiving a heart transplant, they know that somebody else has died. None of this was their decision. This wasn't a choice um, or anything that they had wanted. I think people often wonder why they feel sad or lonely or guilty instead of just gratitude after a heart transplant. And many patients, and and I think society really does reinforce the gratitude of a heart transplant. And I don't mean to minimize that. Um, It is an incredible gift and donor families should be celebrated and thanked endlessly. But I do think it's important to allow our patients to experience the wide range of emotions that come with a heart transplant. They often feel guilty about being alive. They may grieve for the donor who's passed away that they have no idea who this person is. They are sad that their life involved a heart transplant, and they can feel all of those emotions while also being grateful for the gifts that they've given. And so I think being able to really hold space for our patients to have a variety of motions at the same time um, is really critical to allowing
0: our patients to move forward in healthy ways. Thank you. That's so important. The holding space part is is really sometimes it's just you need to have somebody that can listen and, and hear, hear you out without judgment. And so it's really nice to hear that from your perspective, you're offering that. And what concept that we hear a lot about, but that patients might be apprehensive to explore is advanced care planning and palliative care. And they can be sources of great anxiety, but Dr. Peters, can you tell us more about what they mean and how important it is for someone to explore the options available to them?
2: Yes, I think that palliative care and advanced care planning can, as you say, incite some anxiety for patients, but I try really hard to explain what they are and invite patients into a different perspective. These are actually resources for patients that work to decrease anxiety and increase patient control. So palliative care is a medical specialty that focuses on quality of life, symptom management, and support for patients who have a chronic illness. There is a small portion of palliative care that includes hospice, which is often what patients think about when we recommend them meeting with palliative care. And hospice has a place under palliative care, but palliative care is so much more. And it really is a group of multidisciplinary clinicians that seek to support the patient through this chronic illness disease process and giving them the best quality of life for as long as possible. Advanced care planning focuses on patient decision-making regarding their healthcare wishes should they be unable to make their own decisions. So this can involve identifying a person to make medical decisions on their behalf, And it can also have patients identify what they would like done in terms of medical care in an acute or severe illness if they are unable to voice these wishes themselves. Again, I think the biggest part with palliative care and advanced care planning is to really offer patients control of their health care. It allows them to have decision makers that they choose, as well as to verbalize what they want. Should their health decline or should they be in positions where they need to make difficult choices?
0: Thank you. That's really helpful. Dr. Brannigan, outside of, of speaking with a professional such as yourself, what are some of the best resources that patients can access that may be low cost or even no cost that can help them with managing their emotional well being? I like how Dr. Peters just talked about that. Some of this stuff helps to give patients control. So are there other things that a patient can use throughout their journey that um, can just help them, help them manage this, help them to control their experience and maybe just find a little bit of comfort and support?
1: Yeah, you know, I certainly hope that everyone has a a rich social life where they have people uh, in their life that they can go to and confide in. Uh, about what they're going through and the complexities of it and, and that those people are able to listen and and hear about that person's experience. You know, there are listeners who have a loved one with heart failure and are going through this. It's not really your job to solve the problem. That's why there's a big medical team there. They're working really hard on that problem. A lot of times what patients need is just the opportunity to voice what they're going through even if it sounds really unreasonable or scary to the person listening, but to just listen, to express that you understand and ask questions to help the patient explore about what they're feeling. You know, other options that are out there, a lot of patients like to consult with their clergy and uh, reach out to a spiritual advisor. And I think that's a great option for them, especially because there are so many questions about life. Also, hopefully centers can put patients in contact with previous advanced cardiac recipients. So people who've been through this process before and and know what they're going through and know a lot about the ups and downs, uh, having good days, having bad days, what it's like to be shocked by an internal defibrillator and the fear that uh, comes up with that. Those types of conversations sometimes can... Best be had with someone who's been through this process before is in heart failure themselves. And I think that whether there's group options or reaching out to a previous recipient who's willing to act as a consultant or a mentor or guide through this whole process, those are all really great options that are probably low cost or no cost at all to the patient. You know, and at the same time, I will say that because. Heart failure is so complex and the way it impacts mental health is so complex, there can really be no replacement for uh, licensed professional care. And if you feel like you're reaching out to all of your resources and doing the best that you can to manage your mood, but still feel stuck, then it's time to reach out to a professional who might be able to help and uh, is really experienced with treating patients with this type of problem there's a whole group of health psychologists and healthcare social workers who understand what life is like with a chronic illness and can guide patients through that.
0: Brooke, would you be willing to share any of the resources that have really helped you along the way in your journey? Yes, I could relate to
3: a lot of what Dr. Branigan and Dr. Peters have discussed when I had an extremely supportive family, supportive spouse, but After about the first year, I started noticing that my relationships weren't where I wanted them to be. I was living in that very grateful space, and that was healthy in a sense. But once I got the professional help and did the EMDR, is when I really started to see the change in myself and my relationships. My husband and I definitely fell into a caregiver patient relationship and we just got really stuck in it. It was hard to get out. So we had previously done couples counseling. So we were able to get back in touch with our counselor that we really enjoyed. And I did my personal treatment while also mixing in the couples counseling and that really benefited me on all sides. I was able to kind of talk about how my relationship wasn't where I thought it would be after being parents and how myself, I was having difficulties with all those things that they discussed.
0: Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, This conversation has been so important. And I, I really, I just appreciate everybody sharing so much. And we're close to wrapping up, and I want to ask one last question to the whole group. It's one that I find incredibly important, and it is how can we normalize talking about mental health and heart failure treatment and care and I think Dr. Peters, you spoke about this a little bit earlier, but maybe we can we can start with you and then everyone else can follow.
2: I think the best way to normalize talking about mental health care is to talk about it and so the more questions we ask, the more times we ask it, and the more we say, this is what I'm hearing from other people, and the questions that you're asking are the same questions so many other people are asking. The things you're feeling are the same things so many other people are feeling. Really helps to get rid of the stigma, and then it also helps normalize and yet provide hope. And so I think the more that we can talk about this and allow space for patients to talk about it in a non-threatening and encouraging environment will move us forward in our care of mental health.
1: Yeah, and I think that when it comes to stigma and overcoming that hurdle, you know, Dr. Peter's point is is great. It is important to talk about it. And to the providers who are listening to this, I, I hope that they remember that too. You know, it's important to not forget the brain, which can be a, a catchy way to think about it. And at the same time, I think that there's a lot of fear and internal stigma that goes on for patients. And they're going through a really complex process. Their life is at stake. Why wouldn't your mood change a little bit if given those circumstances. I think it's helpful for patients to normalize it in their own mind that going through heart failure can be catastrophic and it's very difficult. And also that the brain is one of the most complex organs in their body. And so why wouldn't it also have some difficulties from time to time, especially if it's going through such a difficult shock to the system with heart failure? And so talk to your doctor about it. Talk with family members about what you're feeling. Chances are there's someone that you know who's dealt with depression before and who's dealt with anxiety before, or maybe is taking medication or has been in therapy before and benefited. And is, I hope that those people would be willing to share what their experience was like in overcoming that.
3: I agree a lot with what Dr. Peters said about continually to check in on mental health and how they're doing because even to this day I have times where I just won't feel like discussing it at this point in my life so appointment and be like yeah I'm fine and then maybe like the next see me like okay I want to discuss this today so it kind of comes and goes and just depending on the other life. And her, I agree with continued support because I've definitely felt I've needed it.
0: Thank you all so much for being on the show today and discussing this really important topic. Brooke, thank you for sharing your deeply personal story with our listeners. We wish you all the best in the future and hope that maybe one day we can do a where are they now episode and bring you back on and check back in and see how you're doing and Dr. Peters thank you so much for prioritizing mental health in discussions with patients that you treat i mean that's just amazing and really love hearing all the the work that you're doing out there in Colorado and Dr. Brand again thank you for helping the patients deal with the incredible emotional challenges of heart failure diagnosis and treatment and to all the listeners of the heart failure beat healthy living Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Visit hfsa.org forward slash patient to find more resources related to heart failure. And make sure you sign up for our HFSA patient newsletter and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.